of our elementary and middle school students are dismissed to their classrooms. It became apparent to me over the weekend um, with getting notifications and you guys coming up to me that our lead pastor thinks he has jokes. Um, so he's going to be gone for a few weeks, and he said if you have complaints of this church, just send them to me. That was actually a typo. He was supposed to type Kenny Atkins. Um, so send those to Kenny. Um, just joking, but seriously, send them to Kenny. That would be appreciated. For the past several weeks, if you're just joining us, um, we have been kind of on a journey examining um, how God, our Heavenly Father, is abounding in love towards all of us. Last week, Bob shared how God's love is with us and even drawn <clears throat> most closely to us in our dark moments of shame, guilt, and regret. None of us will ever be able to fully comprehend God's love in this life. It's too rich, it's too abundant for us to even try to grasp with our limited thinking, but one thing is for sure, all of us are transformed by his love. We are transformed by the love of God, nothing else. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. So we're going to go right into it. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 9. It's page 1563 if you're using a pew Bible. I think that's it. It's a familiar story to many of us, um, story of Paul's conversion. So if you didn't know, before he encountered Christ, Paul was known as the name Saul. That's what he went by. So Paul and Saul are the same person, just to clear up any confusion. This is kind of a little lengthy, but I want us to really kind of immerse ourselves in this story because we could make the argument that all of us are here today because of what happened in this story, because of what happened in the Apostle Paul's life on this day. Acts 9-1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way of Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now when you hear people talk about Paul's conversion, this is typically what comes to mind, right? This is a story that comes to mind for most of us. For obvious reasons, the story is insane. It's crazy. Paul was the elite of the elite of the Jews, okay? He was a devout follower of Jewish law. Anything that went against Jewish law, he violently opposed, even unto death. And so he murdered Christians in the name of God because they believed that following Jesus was more important than obeying the Jewish law. And Paul was having none of it. And so Christians everywhere feared him. So here he is in verse 1, if you look at that again. It says, he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And while on his way to Damascus, Jesus encountered, he encounters Jesus in such a powerful way that it drops him to the ground, knocks him to the ground, blinds him, and forever alters the course of his life. And we're going to quote um, a few times today from author David Benner in his book, Surrender to Love. Here's what he had to say about this text. I think we have it, yeah. This was just the beginning of the changes that led to the death of Saul and the birth of Paul, a man who was to become as famous for his love of Christ and his followers as Saul had been for his hatred. This was the beginning of the end of his arrogance and the end of his self-preoccupation. This would turn out to be his first day of real life. It was nothing short of a conversion, a rebirth. And something fascinating about this story that's rarely talked about is this. Even while imprisoning Christians, harming them, breathing out murderous threats, Paul actually thought that he was on God's side. You ever thought of that? He actually thought he was on God's side. He believed that he was honoring God and doing the Lord's work by killing Christians. Now, it's easy for us to say, that's ridiculous, right? How could he possibly think he was on God's side by murdering people? But let's pause for a minute and consider something. The first one here is pretty obvious, my first example. All of us know people or know that in this world there are lots of, you know, immorally lost people. If you don't know that, watch the news for two minutes, scroll around on social media You'll, you'll figure it out quickly, right? People who are living immorally lost lifestyles. They're into drugs and partying, sleeping around with whoever they want, right? Idolizing money and fame. We get that. Those are the obviously lost people. But there's another group of lost people that exist, but they are much, much, much harder to recognize. And those are the morally lost people. Morally lost people. That's what the Apostle Paul was. And this is certainly where more of us are prone to fall in line with. I don't have to convince an alcoholic who lost his family because of his addiction that he's got a problem and that he needs help. If he has any sense of reality, he would be able to admit that he needs help. But to tell a morally good person that they're lost 
and that they need help, <laughs> you better get ready for war. It's not going to go well. They're not going to receive it well. Morally lost people often operate with a spirit of self-righteousness, as Paul did. Many of them can be big checklist people who live by thinking, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm a good person, period. The Pharisees are a great example of doing all the right things and yet missing God's heart in the process. Morally lost people are who Jesus talked about in Matthew 7 when he said, there will be people who thought they were my disciples. They went to church. They served. They, they did really good things in my name. And yet Jesus said, on that day, I'll look at them and say, away from me, I never even knew you. I never even knew you. You are an evildoer. There are more morally lost people sitting in church pews each week than we'd like to even acknowledge or consider. So whether you're living a blatantly sinful life, or maybe you feel you're a pretty good person that just needs a little bit of tweaking in a few areas, or if you're a devout Christian that's just stuck and not sure how to mature, how to develop in Christ, here's the key, regardless of where you find yourself. Transformation in our lives comes from encountering and experiencing the love of God. Okay? There is no other way. We are transformed by God's love. And on that note, I want to ask you guys a question. Kind of put the ball in your court a little bit before we continue. So here's the question. Get the wheels turning here. Can you share an example from your life of how you've tried to change, but God's love was not the foundation or the driving force behind your hope in changing? So maybe another way to look at it would be like this. What are some ways you've tried to grow and mature in Christ apart from God's love being central to that process? And how has that worked out for you? So the floor is open. So what are some ways you've tried to grow and mature in Christ apart from God's love being foundational to that whole process? Some of you are smiling. So this, this could be interesting. We'll see. The floor is open. You're speak, just speaking of yourself, not the person next to you, right? What do you guys think? I don't mind silence. I'll sit here. Dave. Being more patient. Okay. Never really worked out. Just, just trying to be more patient. Still not working out. Yeah. Okay. I'll check in next week on you. <laughs> yeah. What else? TK. Okay, just trying to do better in his own work, just in his own goodness. I found we're, we're not really that good when we're left on our own, right? We're good because of what he's done in us. Good. Who else? Somebody. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Okay, reading and studying and knowing a lot about God with actually, without actually changing your heart. Yeah. That makes me think there's a chapter of a book by Paul Tripp on that note. He calls it Big Brains with Heart Disease. That describes a fair amount of Christians. Yeah. Anyone else? Lauren.
That's really good. So she says sometimes even our niceness, our friendliness can be motivated by selfish desires, a desire to be liked or to be, yeah, to come across as, man, they're a really sweet family, right? That's good. Thank you, guys. Growing up in church in the 90s, anybody grow up in the church in the 90s? Yeah, some of this will hit you. There is an underlying message that taught me something like this. Do the right things, and you'll be on the right track. If you could sum it up in a sentence, that would be it. Do the right things, you'll be, you'll be right with God. When I shared pain, it was met sometimes with, man, you just need to have a little more faith. So, you know, just have a little more faith, pray about it a little bit more, and then God will show up in such big ways. You got to believe, Justin, not doubt. Anybody heard this? Name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. Right? You're laughing because you know it's true. If God felt distant from me, it's because I probably wasn't spending enough time with him. So I had to get to work. I had work to do to restore that relationship. So in other words, transformation came from my obedience. If I did the right things, not only would I be right with God, but my life would be heading in the right direction. And so I followed along with that advice. Doing right things, but noticing little change in my life as the years went on. That's because something was missing. Something that was not talked about nearly enough or emphasized enough. And it's this. Learning how to live as a response to God's affection for me. That wasn't talked about nearly enough. Learning to live as a response to his love and affection for me. Of course, I was told that God loved me. But it wasn't clear that any change in my life toward Christ best happens after receiving and continually allowing myself to receive his love and affection for me. And that love is what motivates me to change. Not doing more, trying harder, digging my feet in the ground, whatever. Wayne Jacobson, this is a really good quote. In his book, uh, How He Loves, he said, Living in God's affection is not difficult because it is too complex for most, but because it is far simpler than most folks can believe. You mean I don't have to work for his affection, I just have to receive it? Yep. You mean God cares more about my heart than he does my good deeds? You mean he delights in me and he's drawn closest to me in my dark moments of sin and shame? Yep. That sounds too good to be true. Yep. But it is true. It's good news. It's great news and it is the best news that we will ever hear in our life. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards He said, God's love is the most unstoppable force in the universe. I love that. God's love is the most unstoppable force in the universe. And the Apostle Paul discovered this to be true in his own life. Paul's transformation began with his encounter on the Damascus Road. But that was just his first experience, encountering Christ. You could call it his conversion, maybe salvation. But then for Paul... And for all of us, once that initial counter 
encounter has taken place. Then we have the lifelong journey, the lifelong process of changing and becoming more like Christ. Justin said it earlier, that word we often use for that is called sanctification. And what that is is the daily decision to lay down our life at the feet of Jesus and say, not my will, but yours be done. Every single day to let that be the posture of our heart. If you've put your trust in Christ from this moment right now, November 6th, whatever time it is, until the day that you die, you are a work in progress. Day by day, you are being molded, crafted, and transformed to be more like Christ. You can choose not to partner with him in the journey of transformation. You can choose to continue to be passive or to keep operating in your sinful patterns. But the invitation to change is always there. His hand is always reaching out towards ours to join him in the journey. I want to look at a few um, texts that really describe Paul's transformation over the course of his life. So this would have been years after encountering Christ. Um, so here's some things. Some of these are lengthy, but just to give you an idea of how much God changed his heart. So I think this is Romans um, 8. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then we have another text, I think, from Ephesians 3. Yep. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul was convinced that nothing in the present or the future could ever separate us from God's love. The Ephesians passage in particular gives us insight into Paul's heart. This was one of his prayers for the Christians. He prayed that they would have power to grasp the love of God, to grasp the infinite and unconditional love of God that surpasses knowledge. Paul experienced God's love so deeply and so often that he knew that we as fallen human beings could not fathom it on our own. We need supernatural help to try to even come close to understanding the depths of God's love for us. Those words came from a man that thought he had life figured out prior to encountering Christ. Those words came from a man who actually believed he was doing God's will by murdering Christians. Can you imagine the mental torment Paul probably battled throughout his life. I can just hear Satan try to get, get to him 
who do you think you are? You used to kill people. And now you think you're some holy man? Get real. You're nothing but a murderer. You can hear that. I know Satan attacked him there every single day. Look at what you've done. You're nothing. So how did Paul go from murdering Christians with a heart filled with hatred to being a man that's praying for Christians to have power to even try to comprehend God's love? How could he experience such a drastic change? And David Benner in his book, Surrender to Love, he gives us some insight, I think, to help us kind of connect the dots a little bit here. It's a big quote. Whoa. He says, the single most important thing I have learned in over 30 years of study of how love produces healing is that love is transformational only when it is received in vulnerability. It is not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It is the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. The key to spiritual transformation is meeting God in vulnerability. Our natural inclination is to bring the most presentable parts of ourself to the encounter with God. But God wants us to bring our whole self to the divine encounter. He wants us to trust him enough to meet perfect love in the vulnerability of our shame, weakness, and sin. From his first encounter with Jesus to the day he was murdered for his allegiance to Jesus, Paul allowed himself to receive God's love in complete vulnerability. And it changed everything about his life. He had an ugly past, far worse past than anybody sitting in this room. And it's not even close. He could have tried to hide but he continually brought his true self, warts and all, to the Father. And he trusted that God's love was powerful enough to conquer his shame and to free him from the grips of pride and self-righteousness. He went from a murderer to the man that proclaimed in Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. A man that used to kill Christians is so rooted in God's love that he can say, you're not condemned. There's no condemnation for those of us in Christ. So church, how are you allowing yourself to be transformed by the love of God? What does that look like in your life? In his book, What's So, this is an old one, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey said, sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self, maybe you've heard of this, Basically, it's this. You become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. That could be your spouse, a coach. How would my life change if I truly believed the Bible's astounding words about God's love for me? If I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees, how would my life, how would your life change? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we wanted nothing to do with him, Christ died for us. While we were living in drunkenness, shame, greed, cheating lifestyles, you name it, he died for us. And for me, I found in my life that to be transformed by God's love, it's got to be much more than just up here. Okay? 
That's what we, that's, 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 someone said that, this, this head knowledge, right? It's one thing to believe God loves you. It's another thing to experience his love. I experience his love when I can picture Jesus looking at me, smiling and beaming with delight. As opposed to how I used to look at him for a long time, which was unable to look me in the eyes because I thought he was so disappointed and disgusted in me. That's experiencing God's love. I remember in one of the darkest moments of my life, 2019, it was rough. I went into Pastor Bob's office. I think I've shared this story. My, my, my office is downstairs, if you didn't know. It's kind of lonely down there at times. Um, I like it. But when you're really struggling, it's not good. And so I told him what was going on. And this was early morning, and he just said, hey, man, pull up a chair. You're working with me today. You're spending the day with me. I don't want you to be alone. That's experiencing God's love. When God redeemed my life that was spiraling out of control because of mental illness, and now he's actually using my pain in small ways to help people heal, that's experiencing God's transforming love in ways that I don't deserve. David Benner said, for love to transform us, not only must we meet in vulnerability, we must also linger long enough for it to penetrate our woundedness. Think about that. Do you linger long enough in God's presence for him to penetrate your woundedness? When I read that, it made me think of giving hugs to people. Some of you guys are huggers. Some of you aren't at all. Most of us generally, whether we are the initiator of a hug or we're on the receiving end of a hug, for the most part, we don't want it to be awkward. So we might do a quick side hug or bring it in, you know, full body, one, two, maybe three pats on the back if we're feeling generous. But it's, it's pretty quick, right? It's, it's a quick interaction and, ex, and exchange for most of us because we don't want it to be weird, right? God's love is like a hug where time stops where pride is removed, where all of our pretenses and shame are completely thrown out. And he just says, just let me love you. Just sit in it. It's not awkward at all. Just receive it. He wants us to linger in his presence. And guys, before we come to the communion table here in a few minutes, I want to kind of ask some rhetorical questions for you guys to chew on before we have a little bit of silence. How are you allowing yourself to be transformed by the love of God? Or are you trying to change and be a better person apart from his love being central to that process? Like Paul, are you praying for yourself and others to have power to grasp the love of God. Is that your prayer? Are you receiving God's love and vulnerability, or do you often try to present the good parts of yourself to him and to others? He wants it all, and he wants you because his heart is abounding in love for you. He wants you to trust that his love can break the powers, the chains of sin and shame but will you linger long enough in his presence to allow him to penetrate your woundedness to your deepest places of need? We can scramble and hustle 
do X, Y, and Z and work harder and do more to try to change. Meanwhile, God is looking at us, whispering, just let me love you. Just let me love you. Will you let him? Will you let him love you today? I'm going to pray for us now, and after a minute of silence, um, the ushers will dismiss you by row. You can come forward and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice, and we have uh, gluten-free as well um, if you need that as an option. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word today, God. Thank you for the story and just the life of the Apostle Paul and the wonderful example that he sets for us, God, of a completely transformed heart. God, help us to be transformed by your love. Lord, help us to be people that are willing to linger long enough in your presence. That it will change our lives forever. God, help us to be courageous enough to receive your love and vulnerability. And to forget trying to just present the good parts of ourselves that maybe we're proud of or we think are presentable. God, help us to bring who we are fully into your presence, God, right now. Lord, as we examine just how we're changing, how we're growing and maturing to love you, God, we want to do that by experiencing your transforming love, God, because it's the only thing that truly changes us in ways that will last. Lord, we love you. I pray that you'll hear our prayers now. In Jesus' name.